So we've moved big to little all the way down to words. And the next thing you want to recognize is just that there's some general things to observe before you move to interpretation. So before you move to interpretation, you want to just kind of walk away going, okay, now I also have to look at these types of things. And I'm going to show you what some of these are so that we have uh, this one first. It's other observations to make. This is what it is. The first thing you want to do is the literary genre. Now that's the word genre just means style. Uh, I don't know why uh, academics need to take really good words and then fancy them up, but they do. And the word style is just moved up in language to be genre. So there's musical genre. There's country and western. There's uh, rock and roll. There's hymns. And each of those genres, styles of music, follow a certain pattern so that when you hit a country and western station on your radio in your car, you immediately identify it as country and western. If it's a rock and roll station, you immediately identify it as rock and roll. There's no question in your mind what kind of music you're listening to or what style that music is. Literature does the same thing. And the Bible also uses different styles of literature, and you need to be aware of which, one, which style you're actually reading. Now, I'm not going to talk about the details of each of these styles, but I am going to do that later in the day. So on your notes, if you're taking notes, if you care, have a heading, the literary style or the literary genre, and leave a space to add notes later in the day, because you're going to come back to this later in the day. So one of them is narrative. That's the storytelling. Stories are written differently than other kinds of writings, and we're going to talk about that this afternoon. Another one of the uh, styles is poetry, then there's epistle, and then there's prophecy. Each of these styles communicates differently than the other styles. They all use words, they all use uh, language, they all use parts of speech, but they're different. And when you are reading a poem, you know you're reading a poem. When you're reading a story, you know you're reading a story. They just follow different rules, and we're going to talk more about those this afternoon. What you need to do is recognize which one you're reading. We work, we've been working mostly in the epistles, and the epistles tend to communicate explicitly. They just tell you what you need to know. So in Colossians, for example, it says, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he's not hiding anything. He's just coming right out and making his case. This is what I'm telling you. Christ holds all of God's treasures. And there are no treasures of God outside of Christ. Anywhere else, none. They're all in Jesus. It's just straightforward language. It's explicit. He's telling you what you need to believe. And we'll look at the rest of those in more detail. You just need to notice what kind of literature you're reading. This is an important one, and that's literary features. You want to identify literary features. And that is, uh, there's a number of them. One of them is the amount of space given is a technique of emphasis. So whenever you are reading something and there's little space given to it, and then you continue reading and there's a lot of space given to something else, the author is saying, the amount of space I gave to this makes this way more important. This is what I'm trying to emphasize to you. Now, I'm going to show you this in a biblical way. You'll remember the story of Joseph. Joseph uh, uh, was, uh, had an up and down kind of a life. His brothers, his, he was his father's favorite. His brothers sold him into slavery. He was purchased by Potiphar. He was moved to Potiphar's highest in the household. He was, he was over everything Potiphar had. And then Potiphar's wife tried to sleep with him. Okay? 
And so we read that story in Genesis, and here's what we read. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, you know that she just didn't walk up to him and say, hey, I want to sleep with you. Come have sex with me. She did a lot more than that. Hey, Joseph, you hunk. Hey, Joseph, you're, you're my man, baby. And, and, and she tried to woo him, and she tried to tempt him. And over time, she just kept harassing him to come and have sex with her. But the Bible captures whatever she said with one line, come lie with me. That was it. Now watch Joseph's response, because this is how God wants you to view sex. One of the ways you can view sex is through the eyes of Potiphar's wife. And that is, it's just physical gratification. All it is is sex. Come have sex. That's one way you can view sex. It's gratification of your desires, and that's it. But if you want to understand the weight that God places on sex... You want to hear Joseph. Here's Joseph's response. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great great wickedness and sin against God? And all of a sudden, you have one line from Potiphar's wife. Lie with me. Let's have sex. Joseph has a long paragraph. And the, the paragraph weights heavier than her words. And God is saying, listen to Joseph. And Joseph says, wait a minute. Sexual activity is way more than just physical. It's relational. And if I have sex with you, I violate my relationship with your husband, my master. And it's not just physical gratification, it's relational. And my sexual activity has relationships that go beyond us. And then he says, it also includes my relationship with God. And Joseph's argument is, sex is relational. And it influences a lot of people. And God. Hers is, oh, it's just physical sex. And the Bible presents it that way. Lie with me. And then God puts a lot of words in Joseph's mouth so that we understand the physical act of sexual activity has far greater consequences than just sex. It's human. And relationships are affected dramatically by the act of sex. And at your age, you need to know that. You need to know that. There's going to be people who come to you and they're going to say, lie with me. Let's just have sex. And what should process in your mind is, wait a minute, I'm going to have a wife or I'm going to have a husband someday. I have a relationship with God who's moral and cares more about people than just their gratification of desires. And not only am I going to have a wife or a husband someday, you're going to have a wife or a husband someday. And it's going to influence way more than just this next ten minutes. And God wants you to think with those value systems And so he gives Joseph this long argument so that you, reading the book of Galatians at your age, know, geez, I'm a moral being. 
in relationship with others, and I have to be careful how what I do influences those relationships because I've got to live with you a long time. And it matters. Whenever the Bible does that, you need to notice it. So simple little statements versus long arguments. The long arguments are, tend to be emphasized for a reason. So another, another observation, another literary feature is uh, question and answer. So when there's a question and answer feature, you need to know about it. You need to pay careful attention to question and answer features. So when the Bible raises a question and answers the question, raises a question and answers it, you have to follow that pattern, and you cannot walk away from that pattern. I'm going to show you some of those. This is Romans 6 and 7. Romans 6 and 7 is set up on a question-answer pattern. And not everyone follows this, but when you read Romans 6 and 7, you need to. So they, people don't always teach this together, but you should. So Romans 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then when you come to verse 15, he asks this, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. In 6.1 there was a question. In 6.15 there's a question. And verses 2 through 14 answer that first question. And when you read Romans 6, 1 through 15, the whole passage is answering that question. It's not answering any question, it's answering that one. When you get to 6.15, you get another question, and it goes all the way to the end of the chapter. This is the question in 15, and the answer is answering this question. Not any question, this one. When you come to chapter 7, verse 1, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? And then in 7, you get another question, and so you immediately know that 7, 1 through 6, is a question and answer. And you've got to read the answer around that question. You can't make it the answer to any question. There is a question this is the answer to. And you've got to follow this pattern. In 7.7, 7, what, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. And then in 7.13, he hits his last question, which is, did that which is good then bring death to me? And the answer is, by no means. Very clearly, Paul is following a question-answer structure. And when you follow, when you see a question-answer structure, Remember that this answer is answering that question. It's not answering any other question but that one. And, and you have to study it and read it in that light. So this, this is answering that question and not any question, that one specifically. And then you come away with the right understanding of Scripture. Now there's one other one, and this one is uh, the literary form. And uh, this one also is fun. We have an outline, of course. We looked at that last week in the, in the book of Acts where the outline was geographic. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so uh, the outline of the book of Acts is right there before you. The author put it in an outline form and then he worked out that outline in the details of the book. There's one, another one I want to show you, and this is Revelation 119. And he says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now that is an outline for the book of Revelation. Not everyone agrees with me. I have to, I have to forewarn you, not everyone agrees with me. But very clearly... In my understanding, this is an outline for reading the book of Revelation. And if you read the book of Revelation with this outline in mind, you know what was before, you know what is, and you know what's coming next. So much so that when you get to Romans 4.1, this, or excuse me, Revelation 4.1, here's what it says. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The third point of the outline. So Romans 
119 actually says you're going to write about what you have seen, things that are, and what takes place after this. When you get to Revelation 4.1, John is notifying you, I'm on my third point of the outline. This is what must take place after this. And he's tying that outline to Revelation, and I think you have to read Revelation with that outline in mind or you're not going to follow the argument. Whenever you find an outline statement, it's important, and you have to be aware of that. So that's a form given to both Acts and Revelation, and I'm guessing other places as well. Now here's another literary form, and this is one of the most fun to deal with. It's the Oreo cookie or the sandwich form. So I, I, when, I, when I was teaching this back in the early 90s, I wasn't sure how to make this statement, how to explain this, so I always just used an Oreo cookie. And you have the two cookies on the outside, but the cream is in the middle, and the cream is the good stuff, you know? And so I, I said, every, there's a, this Oreo cookie form, and then as I was reading my theology books on this subject of how to study the Bible, I realized that it is what they call the sandwich form. It, the, people refer to it as the sandwich form. You have your bread and your peanut butter and jelly in the middle, and that's what you're going for. So, so it is that picture, and it's used frequently in the Bible. So one of the, way, one of the places this form is given is in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is three chapters long, and it's an argument that is singular. So Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 about spiritual gifts. And, and, and 1 Corinthians 12, 1 starts by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts. And if you read all through 12 and then read all through 14, he's still talking about spiritual gifts in chapter 14. But in the middle, 1 Corinthians 13 sits this chapter we call the love chapter. And you know it is the love chapter. You hear it read at weddings. You hear it, you, you, when someone talks about love, they go, here's the definition of love. Here's the description of love. However they phrase it, they take you to 1 Corinthians 13. But Paul was not talking about love primarily in 1 Corinthians 13. It's an Oreo cookie. There's gifts in 12 Gifts in 14, and in, verse, in chapter 13, where he never mentioned gifts, he's still referencing gifts. It sits in the middle between the two cookies. And 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter on love as you serve Christ. Gifts were intended to be tools for service and love is an essential piece of serving Christ. So if you don't have love, your service is nothing. That's his argument. So some people serve Christ for their own personal gain. There's a lot of people out there that say, I, I, I want to be a pastor because they get the limelight. They stand before people. They get to teach. They have an audience. It's a significant position. And I want to be significant. And Paul's going, yeah, then your service is nothing. Nothing. You can only serve correctly if you love other people with your service. And that's 1 Corinthians 13. It's not about love. It's about ministry. And correct ministry is always done in love, benefiting other people. So that was that one. I just summarized it for the sake of time. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 5. I want to show you this. I'm going to use two passages in Mark to show you what I mean. It's all over the Bible. Mark uses, use, uses it uh, greatly, by the way. So if you look in Mark 5.21, this is a story that says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake, and then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. 
Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now if you look down to verse 37, well, let's say 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Now notice, this is a story that begins with Jairus coming to Jesus saying, you've got to come heal my daughter. So he takes this trip, and at the end of the story, Jesus arrives at their house. But in the middle, there's a story that has nothing to do with that. And in the middle is this story in verse 24. So Jesus went with him, and a, loud, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And you see the people crowding against you, his, disciple, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is a story about Jesus and Jairus going to his home to heal his daughter. And on the way, this story happens, and Mark puts them together as an Oreo cookie. You cannot understand the story of the woman with this disease or this problem outside of the sandwich. That is not an independent story. Mark put it in the middle because he wants you to put, relate this story, this woman, with Jairus' daughter. And, and you, when you're reading this, have to piece them together and figure out why Mark used the sandwich form to convey this story to you. He does the same thing in chapter 6. So in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, look in verse 7. It says, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over impure spirits. Now if you look in verse 30, it says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. In verse 7, he sent the disciples out with power over unclean spirits. In verse 30, they come back and tell him what happened. Everything from 8 to 29 is a different story. But Luke, uh, Mark wants you to understand it's not a different lesson. It's a different story, but it's the same lesson. And I put it in between the, the cookies because you need to eat the cream with the cookies on the outside. That form is used all over the Bible. They introduce something. They take you somewhere else. And then they bring you back to what they first introduced. Never read the middle part separate from the ends. Because it's all trying to convey to you one major story. And one major lesson and one major point. And that is the Oreo cookie form. And you have to be aware of that. When a story gets interrupted and then they bring you back, Know that the author is doing that intentionally because he wants you to read the middle part in light of the outer parts. And he wants you to read the outer parts in light of the middle part. And those things are connected, intimately connected, making it kind of one big picture. So that's the general observations that you have to make there. And now we move to interpretation.
All right, so are there any questions on observation whatsoever before we move on? All right, good. We're going to move to interpretation. Interpretation answers the question, what does the text mean? So we've now moved from what does the text say to the question of what does the text mean? Now, what I want to do is convey to you how to do, how to do this, and I want you to recognize it's rather easy, and then I'm going to give you a, an example of that. But interpreting the text, if you've done the work of observation, is actually rather easy. It's actually just putting back into place everything you took apart to observe. So you observe the theme, you observe the paragraphs, you looked at the sentences, you looked at the word choice, and now you're just going to put it all back together again. So interpretation starts by remembering all the background material. The author was saying something to an audience for a reason, because of something, and he wanted what he said to change their lives in some way, so he had a purpose in writing this. When you go to interpret the text, you have to remember the author was actually talking to someone with a real-life problem or a real-life need, and he was answering that real-life need. And when I interpret it, I have to look at it through that lens. I can't just jump anywhere. The author was saying this to them about that. My interpretation has to follow that pattern. He was talking to them about that. So when I read it, I have to keep that in mind. This is what he's commenting on. You have to remember also that the meaning of the text rested with the author of the text. It's not in the text itself that the meaning is found. It's in the author's intention in the text. And he put his intention in word form. And your job is to say, what was the author telling his audience about that problem? And it's his original meaning that I'm looking for. You can never leave sight of that. You can never forget the background information. Now I'm jumping ahead, but when you apply it, you're just going to apply the same purpose. So in interpretation, you take the author, the audience, and the occasion. When you go to apply it, you're going to grab the purpose. That's what you're doing. You're doing your work of observation, and now you're using it to interpret the biblical text. It's rather simple, but you have to be careful to do it correctly. You have to, do it, uh, correct, you have to be careful to do it correctly because of this right here. This is Peter's comments on Paul. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter actually says about Paul, man, he's tough to, he's tough to interpret. It's hard to understand what Paul is talking about, but you have to be careful to do it, and you have to do it right. Unstable, and, and, uh, unstable people distort it, and they end up ruining theology. So you have to do it right. So Peter's recognizing the work is important and, and, and sometimes it's difficult, but you have to just follow the pattern. So not only do you have to now take the background information and keep that in mind, you also have to keep in mind the process of writing or the idea that every composition has a theme and every paragraph is developing that theme. There are no independent paragraphs and there are no independent verses or sentences. There's nothing independent. We're not talking about anything else but that theme. And every verse and every paragraph in the book is actually talking about that one theme. And it's moving the argument of the theme in a pattern so that this theme is getting developed in paragraph forms. And when you take this paragraph and apply it somewhere else, you've, mis you've mistaken Scripture to mean something different. It only is referencing this particular theme. You have to keep that in mind. 
everything you've learned about your writing skills and everything you've learned about any composition applies here. The books of the Bible have a theme and the parts of that composition are all relating to the theme. They're not talking about something else. When you do that, you will interpret correctly. I'm going to model this for you. I'm going to model this for you in a text that's frequently interpreted wrongly. I'm going to show you why it's interpreted wrongly. Then I'm going to come back and interpret it correctly for you. And I don't know if you've been taught this passage or not, but you will be taught this passage at some point in time in your Christian experience, and you will from now on be able to say, but that's wrong, I know a better way. Okay? So I'm going to show that to you as we move forward. It happens to be 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. So this is one that if you recognize it, you're going to see that you've heard it before. What it says is, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, I don't know how you've been taught this text. I don't even know if you have been taught this text. I can only tell you how I was taught this text. And it was this. That's why Christians don't smoke. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and if anyone destroys the, Holy, uh, the, the temple, God destroys him. And, and if you smoke, you're destroying the temple, and God will destroy you. All right. That's how I was taught this. I can tell you that is, that is absolutely wrong, a bad interpretation of this text, and in fact, contrary to Scripture entirely. So how do we know that interpretation is wrong? Well, one of them is the word choice. Now, we don't know this in English, but if we were to read this and do a little research in uh, Scripture, we would find that all the pronouns are plural. So when it says, do you, he's not saying you as an individual. He's saying you as a collective group. Do you not know that you are God's temple? He's not saying you're God's temple. He's saying we're God's temple. And, and the destruction of God's temple is not the destruction of my body. It's the destruction of the church, the temple of God. And so, so he's not talking about you personally and whether or not you destroy your body. He's talking about the destruction of the church. So if you know anything about Corinthians, you have to recognize that there is a theme to the book, right? And I mentioned this last time, and so you might remember it. Uh, this is the theme. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now notice the theme. It's talking about unity. It's talking about being in agreement with one another, and having the same mind as one another. And he's not talking about you personally. He's talking about you collectively. And you being unified with everybody else. Now if that's the theme, and we know there are no independent paragraphs, we can't come over to chapter 3 and have him talking about you and your body. He's not talking about you and your body. He's talking about us and the body of Christ, and we're to be one. That has nothing to do with whether I smoke or not. Nothing. Smoking affects my body, but it doesn't affect us. So he's not talking about the destruction of your physical being. He's actually talking about the destruction of the collective body of Christ and or the church. So when you recognize that there's a theme to the book and... Every paragraph has to relate to that theme. 
you would have seen a conflict if you had known the theme and read this personally and thought, well, maybe I shouldn't smoke. It's the wrong application. I'm not in any way suggesting to you that you should smoke. I'm just saying you can't interpret it that way. And, and logically, it would also not work for this reason. If your body was the temple of the Holy Spirit and you were instructed to maintain a good temple, then it would not be enough not to smoke. You'd also have to change your diet and you would have to not eat Campbell's soup because Campbell's soup is really salty and your body can't have too much salt or it gets ruined. Or uh, I'm assuming for lunch we're going to have pizza again today. Yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff in this pizza. And maybe you shouldn't eat the pizza if, if it's really a text about not destroying your body. So not only is it the things we have to avoid, but if in fact this is true, every one of you should be a Y member or a physical fitness member. And every one of you should be jogging every day and you should be working out every day to take care of this temple. It only follows logically that if, if that's the argument of this text, don't destroy it, that the flip side is true, you better promote it. And now you've got to spend your time in a gym. And you've got to spend your money in a gym and so forth and so on. And it complicates all of life. Now we could say, unhealthy Christians are bad Christians. Overweight Christians are bad Christians. Out-of-shape Christians are bad Christians. And all kinds of things. So then the best Christians are the bodybuilders. It just falls apart on every front. Absolutely, it falls apart on every front. And we'd have to take this and utterly go crazy with it, and it's wrong. So now let me show you how to view this correctly. If the theme is unity, and if the theme is agreeing together, and if we followed Paul's logic, what we would find in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 is this argument being developed. So verse 10 states the theme of unity, being of the same mind, and then he moves into this. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now we're in a church fight. The goal is unity. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now notice, they've quarreled, and they've factioned. And so now in this body of Christians, they now have factions, and some are claiming superiority because they follow Apollos. Apollos was an orator, by the way. He was a, a great public speaker. He had a wonderful, charismatic presence in the pulpit. And you're familiar with this. Sometimes you go to church and the, the pastor is charismatic and he's, he's capturing your attention just by his speaking ability. Uh, regardless of what he says, you're enthralled. And other times you get a pastor up there who's just kind of deadpan and, and he's not doing much and he's, you're kind of bored with his presence regardless of what his comments are like. Well, Paul was more like the latter one. Paul was more of the low-key guy. and he, he got before a congregation, and he, he, didn't, he didn't talk in a way that captured people. His content captured them. Apollos was an orator. He, he was charismatic, and he got followers partly because of his presence. You'd have never followed Paul for his presence. He was, a, he was a squirrely little guy, probably blind, didn't have tremendous uh, uh, pulpit or public presence, and he just kind of uh, spoke, but his, his, his content should have captured you with the truth of God. And then there's Peter, of course. Some people say, ah, yeah, but I'm with the first guy, man. I, come on, Peter's the best. And then other people, oh, no, well, we, we just follow Jesus. We're better than all of you because we, 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 don't, we don't follow any man. We just follow Jesus. And they factioned off into these groups. And there was quarreling among them over Christian leaders. Now, Paul's argument was, you're, you're fighting over the wrong thing. It's content we care about. It's not the people delivering the content. In, in this audience right here, you're all commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You're all commanded to be missionaries. You're all uh, commanded to be evangelists. And yet, you don't have the same personalities. Some of you are charismatic. Some of you are low-key. Some of you are, 
are going to be great in one setting and some of you will be great in another setting. It's not what's going to make you an evangelist. What's going to make you an evangelist is the content. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And apart from the gospel, nobody gets saved. And if you're going to be an evangelist, you communicate the gospel. However you communicate the gospel. Some of you will be passionate and some will be low-key. It doesn't matter. It's the gospel that saves, not you. And that's Paul's argument in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And he argues that all the way through. In chapter 4, you can see that he's still talking about himself and Apollos. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, do you notice that? I'm telling you, you don't go beyond what's written and say Apollos is better than Paul or Paul is better than Apollos. That's not the point. You stay with what's written, and no one becomes puffed up for one against another. He's on the same subject. I showed you chapter 1. He introduced Paul and Apollos. I showed you chapter 4. He introduced Paul and Apollos. He's still on the subject. And we're looking at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. He's not talking about smoking. He can't be talking about smoking He's talking about a Paul and Apollos. And you can't take 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 and start talking about smoking and be right. You've missed the point. So what was Paul saying? Well, let me take you to 1 Corinthians uh, 3. And I need you in your Bibles now. And let's look at the context of these verses. And you will see precisely what's being said here. And then we will have done our work of interpretation. So look in 1 Corinthians 3.10. And in this long argument, four chapters long, he writes this paragraph. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. All right, who's building on it? Paul lays the foundation. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. Apollos is building on the foundation. All right? So the idea is the foundation's laid and someone is building on that foundation. I'd like to suggest to you that Rich Peterson is building on that foundation. I'd like to suggest to you that every time you teach the Bible in your youth group or in the future when you're witness, You're building on that foundation, or else you are in trouble. Watch how the passage develops. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now notice, what Paul is saying is, I laid a foundation that's all representing Jesus correctly, and no one can lay another foundation. The church does not grow wide. It does not build a different or a larger foundation. The church's foundation has been laid, and it's this whatever shape, but it all is built on Jesus, and there's nothing more than this. So, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, there's two kinds of people building on this foundation. Some are going to get it right, and their teaching is going to actually gain them a reward. Other people's teaching is going to be wrong. They're going to be bad teachers. All their work is going to be burned up. But they're still going to be saved because they themselves are believers in Jesus Christ. 
So you have two groups of people. One is some build right, but you're building up. Nobody's building out and have it be right. But if you build up, you can do it right or you can do it wrong. This is a class on doing it right, by the way. That's what we're trying to do, do it right. Some people don't do it right, and their teaching is not good. It's not accurate. It's not biblical. So their work is going to be burned up and they'll be saved. But, verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. There's a third group of people whose message destroys the church. It's not just that it's not effective, it's destructive, and they will be destroyed. Heretics, false teachers, they themselves will be destroyed. This is a text that's talking theologically. Some teachers teach right, some teachers teach wrong, and some teachers are heretics. Three groups of teachers. And when you destroy the body of Christ, you do it doctrinally, theologically, and you will be destroyed. Now, you have a theological understanding of this text that relates to the theme. We all have to be united in the same mind on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with smoking. It has nothing to do with being a bodybuilder and having a great shape. That's crazy. Bad interpretation. So now notice what I did with this text. All I did with this text is follow the logic of the argument. I followed the background and I followed the context with the theme presiding over all of my interpretations. And I come away with what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. I didn't do anything great. I just never left the background information and the theme. And I understood this paragraph in light of that theme, and I came away right. That's the process. You just can never leave it. The problem with interpretation is we jump away from those other things, and we interpret this independently, and there are no independent paragraphs and there are no independent sentences. And you just can never forget that. That's the work of interpretation. There's nothing more to it than that. You just have to be careful to do that process. Okay, we're moving to correlation. Okay, I have two slides up here I want you to see on interpretation. Accurate interpretation leads to accurate theology and practice. And inaccurate interpretation leads to inaccurate theology and practice. And that's just kind of like the conclusion to what I was saying. Uh, if you interpret that badly, you're a good Christian if you don't smoke. That's absurd. Correlation asks the question, what does the text mean in relation to the whole? So this is a simple one. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But what it does is it, when you're coming across a passage in Scripture and you say to yourself, oh, this is talking about something that's talked about somewhere else. It's also important to get to compare those, to understand the whole argument. There's one that's real common in our day. When we bring two things together, we have to make sure they're in relationship with one another rightly so there can be no contradictions. So here's one of them that you're familiar with, and you've probably used this because this is your generation misusing it, but everybody does it now. Matthew 7 says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So when you're looking at Matthew, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. And your generation loves this statement, You cannot judge me. God says you can't judge me. And you throw this verse around like it was meant to be everything. Uh, or someone says, well, I'm, I'm trying not to be judgmental, but... And then you go into being judgmental anyway. But you use that argument a lot because of this verse right here. 
And what you say is, God does not want me to pass judgment on anything or anybody. And I want to stand before you today and say, that is a bold-faced lie. A bold-faced lie. God does not want us, his followers, to be backboneless. We stand for something. We stand for truth. And it's not wrong if one of us says, but that is a sin. It's not wrong for us to do that. Even though this says, judge not, that you be not judged. So how do I know that that's true? Because I've correlated this. And if you look over to 1 Corinthians 5, Paul in the end of 1 Corinthians again, by the way, is making this statement. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So this was the Corinthian church regarding the guy sleeping with his stepmother. His biological mother died, his father remarried, and then his father died, and now he married his stepmother, or at least was living with his stepmother in a conjugal way. And God goes, wait a minute, (laughs) Paul goes, this is wrong. You are to judge people within the church. Purge that guy from your midst. Don't let him be among you and live like that. Now notice, Paul is saying the exact opposite of Matthew 5. Obviously, you can't read Matthew 5 and go, I'm never supposed to judge. Because Paul goes, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So we have to correlate those. We have to say in our minds, I wonder what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. If Paul is saying this in 1 Corinthians, they can't both be generally true. They have to be saying something specific about specific situations because they cannot both be true. That's the work of correlation. You have to do that when there's this type of thing in Scripture. So a lot of times something, there's a text that says this, there's another text that says that, and you've got to correlate them and say to yourself, I need to understand both before I can understand either. And I would agree with that in this text. There's a few of those. Not tons, but a few of them that are necessary. Okay, that's all I'm going to say on correlation. 